Hi, everybody. Um, I'll tell you what, after that time of singing and, and the prayers and everything, I'm tempted to just abandon this sermon and preach on what we just did. It was really great. I just want to say one little thing, um, restraining myself from a whole sermon on the worship, is when Ramey read from Colossians, um, that, I had, that had the same impact on me as, you know, you, you imagine how big, how mighty, how gigantic the universe is, and that was all created by him and for him. It's just, you know, and who are we? You know, this is why the psalmist says, you know, what is man that you would take heed of him? And they didn't even have a concept of how big the universe is. So the fact that he cares about this tiny little speck of dust is just amazing to me. It blows my mind. One thing I did want to say on the, the Colossians passage, though, he says, in his image, or he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And I just want to be clear, that does not mean he was the first created thing. Um, some of the cults will take it that way. They'll read that and they'll say he was the first created being and then God through him created everything else. The text itself won't allow that, will it? What is the very next thing he says? For by him all things were created. So if he's the first created thing, he, the first thing he had to create was himself. That just doesn't make any kind of sense. So what does it mean then that he is the firstborn of creation? I think it's talking about the birth order. He stands to inherit everything. So that giant universe that Ramey was pointing us to, Jesus stands as the head and he says, I'm going to inherit this whole thing. It comes to me as the firstborn, um, eternally begotten of the Father. So I just want to make that really clear because um, there are people out there who make that mistake and, and, and turn that into Jesus is the first and greatest created being. No, he's not. There was never a time when there was no son. He, he's always been there. Let that sink into your head and pray. And uh, when you praise <laughs> this eternally begotten person, um, our God is amazing. With that, let me invite our children up through third grade to Children's Church. Um, your teacher will meet you at the back. And uh, while they go, um, let me open us in a word of prayer. God of wonders beyond our galaxy. Lord, there are things that are happening in this universe that we can't even begin to comprehend right now, so far away from us, happened so far in the past, we can't conceive of what's going on, and yet not one atom, not one quark, not one bit of energy in this entire universe escapes your notice. And Lord, that's hard for us to conceive, just, just driving down the freeway and to think every single car around us these people all have plans and thoughts and families and histories, and we can't even conceive of that. So for an entire universe to be created by him and through him and for him, Lord, that, that's amazing. And so, Lord, as we gather to worship as your people, um, we confess that we only know in part and that we see in a mirror but dimly. And, Lord, we look forward to that day when we will see you face to face and know you as you are. So in the meantime, Lord, in, in the, the between time for us, we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would be working in our hearts and our minds, that you would illuminate your word, that you would help us to see, and most importantly, Lord, would you cause us to worship? Would you lead us to a place of wonder that we desire to worship and to be amazed at you? So be with us now as we look at this text, and we ask in Christ's name, amen. So did you notice it was a rather long reading? We're back in Old Testament narrative, and Old Testament narrative tends to be bigger chunks. So uh, I want to apologize to Melissa. There's going to be some struggles in getting this all fit into the, uh, the bulletin. We may have to go to a four-page you know, fold-out or something in the bulletin to, to fit all this in here. 
but it's okay because it's God's word and he wrote it this way. Uh, so what this, this message this morning, the title I've given it is Hope Without Straw. And that's a double meaning, has, has two meanings. But uh, when we look at this passage, this is that first engagement that Moses has with Pharaoh, the first time he goes in and says, let him go. And what happens? What's the result? So what I want to do this morning is just kind of pass over this quickly and just kind of get the story. It's a pretty straightforward story. There's not a whole bunch of, of odd details in it. Uh, go through it, and then at the end, I want to look back at three things, reflect on what these teach us. Tribulation, compatibilism, what did you think it sounded like? Com cannibalism. It's not cannibalism. <laughs> Compatible. Compatibleism. And then finally, the hope that, that we can have from this. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's take a look then. Um, so starting in, in chapter 5, Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh, and they just announce, this is what the Lord says, the God of Israel, let my people go. Now, how on earth did Moses and Aaron get that kind of access where they just go waltzing into Pharaoh's presence? Um, potentially, Moses is still remembered by some people who are now higher up ranking people in Pharaoh's court. Um, maybe it took a while to get in there. I mean, how do you schedule an appointment with the king of the world? Um, we don't know. That, that's not really important. What Moses is telling us is it doesn't matter how we got there because what happens later? The foremen go in and talk to Pharaoh and say, hey, dude, What's going on? How did they get to walk in? They're supposed to be building bricks and stuff. How do they just waltz into Pharaoh's presence? Moses is telling us none of that's important. That's not the most important thing is how we got access. Don't worry about that. The fact is, Aaron and I went in and we talked to Pharaoh. and We told him, let my people go. And this is what he says. He says, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So they're going to, the, 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 Argument is we need to go into the wilderness and worship our God. We're going to have a feast. Um, a sacrifice in the old days, we tend to think of, of like whole burnt offerings, right? You, you'd take an animal and you'd kill it and you'd throw the whole thing on the fire and burn it up. That was only one particular type of sacrifice under the law. Typically what a sacrifice was, was you'd bring your animal, you'd sacrifice it, you would, you would put parts of it on the altar, um, but the rest of it, you would then cook and celebrate. You would have a feast. You would sit down and eat in front of the, the uh, tabernacle or the temple. And that was what a sacrifice was. It wasn't all whole burnt offerings. It was sometimes a feast. So that's what they're asking for, is they want to go on this pilgrimage into the wilderness and sacrifice to their God. And this is Pharaoh's response. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Now, we've just come off the burning bush, right? We've just finished that whole episode. So let me ask you, who is Yahweh that he should let his people go? This is why it's really important that Ramey pointed us to this immense universe. Why does any of that exist? Yahweh is I am. He is existence. He is the reason there is anything. He is eternal. He is all-powerful. So Pharaoh saying, well, who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? You have no idea what you're messing with. You have no idea who you're engaging with here. But let's step back for a second and step into Pharaoh's sandals. I guess they wore sandals, right? The way Pharaoh has been brought up his entire existence, his whole life is there are multiple gods. And there's a god of Egypt, and there's a god of Canaan, and there's a god of Mesopotamia, and there's a god of, uh, of Ethiopia, and you know all of these different gods. So who is your god to walk in and tell me what to do? My gods are telling me what to do. They told me that, oh, by the way, I am a, a, an offspring of the gods, and therefore I'm Pharaoh. So why on earth should I listen to your god? By the way, he's the god of slaves. 
My God is the God of Egypt, the most powerful land uh, in, in the entire world. Why should I listen to your God? It's not an unreasonable question, is it? Because of where he is, because of who he is, because of where he's at, it's not a terribly unreasonable question because it seems like, well, your God's not strong enough to deliver you, so why is he coming and asking me to let you go? That ain't gonna happen. So he refuses. He said, there's no way I'm gonna let that happen. I will not let Israel go. So then they respond, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and the sword. If we don't go and offer sacrifice to our God, he's going to judge us. Now, the reality of that is, who is God going to fall on with pestilence and the sword? It's not the children of Israel. But the threat is real. This is the kind of God that we're worshiping. This is the kind of God we serve. He could do this. Even while we're in the land of Egypt, he can bypass all of your gods and still come and punish us if, if he so desires. And the kind of next step implication is, oh, and by the way, he can get you too. So that, that's the threat. That's the, the picture that they've painted for him. But the king of Egypt said, why are you taking the people away from their work? You guys are being lazy. Why would you stop working? We've told you what you have to do, now go do it. And so he decides that he's going to ramp things up. You have enough time to complain and whine and want to go out in the desert? Well, then you've got more time to work. So he tells his people, don't gather any more straw for them. Let them get it themselves, but don't reduce the number of bricks they got to make. So that's, that's his plan. This is his scheme. And don't forget where this is coming from. Now, this is a new Pharaoh from Moses' birth from the very beginning of the book because when Moses was in Midian, he was told the Pharaoh has died. There's a new Pharaoh, and now you can go back. But the, the problem is still the same. Remember, the original issue was there are too many Hebrews, and they're scaring us. They might rise up. They could join with our enemies if we get attacked. We could have an enemy army right in our midst, and so we've got to tamp them down. So that's the terrifying part is he's thinking these people are not subdued enough. If they come and they send a leader to me to ask for a release, they obviously need to be worked harder. So what Pharaoh's looking at here is he's, he's, I think he's very carefully considering what's happening. Is he wants to keep the young men, the strong men, the, the people who could go to war exhausted. Because if they're exhausted, then they can't engage in a fight. But if they go on a three-day trek into the wilderness and have a feast, guess what they get to do? They get to stop working. They get to sleep longer. They're going to go eat a bunch of food as they make this sacrifice. They're going to come back into Egypt energized and ready to go. So if there's a time for an uprising, it would be right after that. So what he does is he, he's typical government here. That hasn't worked, so we'll do more of it. Right? The, the slavery thing hasn't really tamped them down because they're still asking for stuff. Uh, so we'll just do more of that and that'll fix it. That, that's how governments have worked time immemorial. And so that's how government works today is let's, this is not working. We just need to do it more often and it'll work better in the future. So that's the plan. Word gets back to the, um, to the people. And what happens is there's taskmasters and they go to the foreman and they say, we're not going to bring any straw. You get your own straw, but we're, you're still required to make all the bricks. The really great thing about this is the most critical scholars say this was written after the return from exile or something like that, and, and blah, 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 blah. There is such detail in this that fits with ancient Egyptian way of doing things. There are plenty of documented cases where people are making bricks 
they would take these wooden shapes, they would put mud in it, they would mix straw into the mud, and then they would let it bake in the sun. There's still buildings with this stuff standing in it. And not only did, they, did Moses accurately describe the bricks, he accurately described the division of labor. What would happen is Pharaoh would set taskmasters. These were Egyptians who would interface with the leaders of the people. They would assign foremen. So these foremen would be Hebrews who had to lead this. And the Egyptian taskmasters, they wouldn't deal with the people. They deal with the foremen. And isn't that just exactly what happened? How come you haven't made enough bricks? The foremen get beaten. They're obviously not Egyptians. These are the slaves. There's documented evidence that this is exactly how the Egyptians did it all the time. Right down to there is a quota of bricks you have to make. There's a papyrus of a, a foreman writing to the government saying, hey, they, they're meeting their quota of bricks. So this is all extraordinarily what this is showing us in this, this detailed section that Moses gives us. This is extremely historic. This is exactly how things happened back then. So if some later editor after the exile was able to write this, man, this guy was a genius. He knew more history than we do, and we don't know how, because he was in exile the whole time, so how did he know this? The, the, the critical theories, if you just let them sit long enough, then it kind of crumble under their own weight at some point. So at any rate, the foremen go into Pharaoh, and they, they say, what are you doing? Why do you treat us like this? You're not giving us any straw to make bricks, and your servants are beaten. We got, we got whipped for this. Um, and then they say something pretty brash, but the fault is with your own people. It's almost throwing it back at Pharaoh and saying, look, we were doing it. We were okay making bricks the way it worked. Why are you throwing more stuff on us? And so Pharaoh explains to them, you're idle. You're idle. You're not doing anything. You've got to work harder. So then they go, when Moses and Aaron, when they come out from Pharaoh, they, Moses and Aaron are standing there. And what do the people say? They say, the Lord look on you and judge you. You've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and put the sword uh, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So the people go in, they beg of Pharaoh, look, we're okay with the slavery thing, but this, this straw issue has got to get resolved. Pharaoh says, no, you're just being lazy. And who do they blame? Moses and Aaron, it's your fault. If you hadn't shown up, we were doing okay until you showed up. You made us this promise that you're going to deliver us and look what happened. Your first effort is now we're working harder. So then Moses turns to the Lord and says, Oh, my Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? And why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Lord, it's only made it worse. So that's kind of the story. Now, the next part, chapter 6, is God speaks. As I've always said, that is the most important part. That is the central part of this message. It's where we're going to spend most of our time. But we've got to back up and just take a look at where we're at here. These people have been enslaved. Their God showed up and said, I promise I'm going to deliver you. And so they go, yes, wonderful. And what does it say at the end of chapter 4? They bowed in, in worship. Let us worship the Lord. And then Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh. And what the people are probably looking and they're expecting is they're going to come out and announce that we're free because God said he would deliver us. And the word that comes out of the court is, oh, by the way, you're lazy and you got to work harder. It didn't work. It didn't happen. What, what happened? We, we thought we were going to be delivered. We thought everything was going to be better. And it got worse. Moses, you're a failure. You're making our lives harder. This is so unfair. So the first thing we see here is this idea of tribulation. They're in trouble. They're, they're facing 
real hardship, bad hardship. And so this is the Lord's answer. He says, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. God's not given up. He's not done yet. I understand that things are bad, but you will see what I'm going to do for Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. What does that mean? The NIV translates it, because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. And because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out. And um, one commentary I read said, that's inexplicable. Doesn't make any sense when you look at the Hebrew. It's not because of, it is with. So the ESV and the King James both say the similar thing. With a strong hand, he shall let them go. And with a strong hand, he shall drive them out. The New American Standard translates it and kind of stepping back and trying to capture the idea and says, for under compulsion, he will let them go. It is the Lord's strong hand, because the problem is the way that it's worded in Hebrew, it's just by a strong hand, he will let them go. So how, how do you interpret that? Is it Pharaoh has a strong hand and will let them go? Well, strong hands don't let, they cause. Uh, so the idea that I think the uh, ESV and the NAS are reaching for is God's strong hand is going to cause this to happen. So in the midst of the tribulation, in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the difficulty, God is working toward a point. And that point will be Pharaoh will let them go. But it got worse first. So there, there's, a, there's a direction, a trajectory this is heading. And where it's going to go is something that's called compatibilism. Not cannibalism, compatibilism. Compatibilism is the idea that God is utterly sovereign. He can dictate from the beginning what will happen at the end. And isn't that what he's done here? He has told the people, you will go out of Egypt. You will be delivered. And humans are absolutely free and held accountable for those free decisions. So that's the idea that these two ideas, these two truths are presented in the scripture side by side, and they are in some way we can't understand compatible because the human mind wants to say either people are free to make the decisions and therefore have the burden of the responsibility for it, or God has determined what they're going to do and then they're not responsible. So is it either or? And, and the struggle here is to keep those two together, hold them together as compatible ideas that we may not understand how exactly they mesh together. So here's an example. At the burning bush, this is what God said. Go gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and, I have, uh, and what is done to you in Egypt. And I promise I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hevites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. God has stated his end goal. I've seen where you're at now. I understand you're, in, you're being persecuted. I understand you're a slave. My promise is I will take you out. That will happen. Divine sovereignty. He has announced his plan. And he says, and they will listen to your voice. The people, when you go, Moses, they will listen to you. Are they listening to his voice at this point? They're, they're angry at him. Moses, this is all your fault. They listened to his voice at first, but now they're angry at him. So God, even in his sovereignty, is saying, I know what's going to happen. They will not listen to your voice, but I'm promising you they will. So I'm, I'm telling you that they're going to trust you. 
Uh, they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met us, and now please, us, please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Do you hear what he's just said? You will go to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I know that Pharaoh won't let you go. He already knows what's going to happen. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I do. After that, he will let you go. So here is the free will portion of this. He doesn't come to Pharaoh and, and remove his mind and put a different mind into him so that Moses shows up and says, uh, let my people go. And he goes, okay. He doesn't do that, does he? He, he knows that Pharaoh is going to have to do this by his own free will. He's going to have to freely let him go, let the people go. But he says, I know he won't do it. I know that he's going he's to resist. So it will be with a mighty hand that he lets you go. So what he's saying is, I'm not going to turn Pharaoh into a robot. He has his free will. He will do what he believes to be right, what he wants to do. And yet I will have my way in him. I will have him do exactly what I want him to do at the time I want him to do it. Because these two truths are compatible. These two truths are not mutually exclusive. They're going to happen. So here's, here's an example of, I think, sometimes how we wrestle with this. In Star Trek Discovery, there's an, uh, a character called uh, Lieutenant Commander Ariam. And she was injured in a really horrible accident, and so she's mostly cybernetic. She's mostly computers and stuff. And um, there's still a biological aspect to her, but she's kind of a mix, and she looks like a robot. In one of the episodes, one of the things that she has to do is download her memories because unlike the God, the brain that God designed for us, that has a limited storage capacity. So one time she's in her machine downloading her memories and something installs a virus in her. You see this weird look on her face and now she's contaminated. Well, what happens is later on they're, they're on a mission and all of a sudden the virus kicks in and she starts trying to kill her crewmates. And so they eventually lock her into an airlock, and she's beating on this airlock, trying to get through, and she, she's talking, because in Star Trek, you can talk your way out of everything, right? So they go in and they say, Ariam, you don't have to do this. And she, her response is, they've taken over. I can't control myself. If I get out of this, you're going to die. I will kill you. You have to open the airlock and vent me into space. That's the only way you can survive. And so they don't want to do it, but they can see she's going to get through if they don't do something. And so they do. That's how I think sometimes we think about the question of God's sovereignty and human freedom. If we say God is sovereign over your free choice, we think, well, that must be like Lieutenant Arian. I don't want to do this, but I know that the virus that's contaminated my brain is going to force me to. So you might think of like Pharaoh, or not Pharaoh, I'm sorry, Pontius Pilate. After he has sent Jesus to be scourged, he washed his hands, right? He says, I'm, I'm not guilty of this man's blood. After he pronounced him innocent, he said, yeah, go crucify him. It would be almost like God was dragging him over and forcing his hands into the water and putting his hand up his back and making him say these words. And poor, poor Pilate is saying, no, I don't want to do this. That's not how this works. Pilate did exactly what Pilate wanted to do. Pharaoh is doing exactly what Pharaoh wants to do. The problem is not... Do they do what they want to do? The problem is what they want to do. Does that make sense? So God can look and he can say, I understand Pharaoh. I made Pharaoh from the time he was two cells. 
and, and a sperm and an egg came together. I made him. I knew where he was going to grow up. I knew the experiences he had. I knew who he was going to be. I knew how he was going to react. And I'm allowing him to freely choose what he's going to do. But his freedom will be in accordance with who he is. And so God can say, I don't have to mold and shape and, and force and coerce things out of him. I know how he's going to react freely. And the way he's going to react is I'm going to come and I'm going to do miracles in front of him. And doing that will harden his heart. He will become stubborn. He is so full of himself, he will become more stubborn. And so I'm going to keep ramping up the miracles, and he's going to keep resisting until a certain point where I can break him and then get my people out. So that's the idea of, of compatibilism. God is utterly sovereign, and people are totally free. They are free to act within accordance with their nature. They will act how they want to act. You will only ever do what you want to do. Now, you should be going, but Tim, what did God say about Pharaoh? It's a, it's a mighty hand that will move him, right? It is coercion that will cause him to release the people. So at that point, he doesn't want to, or does he want to? Well, at that point, what the two choices he's given is, either I release these Hebrews, which is going to really not look good for me because I kept saying no, or it's only going to get worse. The pattern that I've seen so far is these escalating uh, curses and then finally the death of my firstborn. What do I want more? Do I want Hebrew slaves more or do I want to be free of this God and rid of this thing that keeps bothering me? So he will freely act in accordance with his desires. His desire is to be rid of this God. And the only way to get rid of that God is to get rid of his people. So that, that's, that's what Pharaoh is going to do. Look at the people. What do the people say? They don't blame God in this. They don't doubt God. They ask God to curse Moses. So what happened to them is they are now suffering. They are being punished. They're having to work harder. And this must be Moses's problem. This must be his fault. That is a free and open choice on their part. They have decided that it's, it's, Pharaoh's, or it's uh, Moses' issue. They're not doubting God. They don't want to doubt God. They want to believe God's promises. But something didn't work because it's only gotten worse. And does God say, no, you, I said you guys are going to believe him. You have to believe him. Let me just get my fingers inside your head and force you to believe him. No, he's, he's going to prove to them that Moses is trustworthy eventually. And what about Moses? Did Moses have any choice to go to Egypt? What did he say at the burning bush? I don't speak good. Send somebody else. Um, they're not going to listen to me. Send somebody else. So was he free to not go to Egypt? Or did God have to force him into it? God gave him the choice. Here's the two options you have, Moses. I am calling you to do this. I'm giving you this promise. I will be with you. I will speak with you. I will make sure these things take place. I know you don't want to go, but I'm asking you. I'm telling you this is what you need to do. And so Moses, even with his objections, which you still hear him now, don't you? Why did you ever send me? He's still doing it because he wants to. If God had turned him into a robot, what would he be saying at this point? Yes, master, I will go. He, he wouldn't have a, a free choice, but he does, and he's wrestling with that. He's wrestling with those implications. So that's that idea of compatibilism. Why is compatibilism a good idea? Why is, it a good, why is that helpful? Why is that a good thing? Let's take it in pieces here. Let's take for a second and assume God is not sovereign. You are free to choose whatever you want. You can, any choice you make, it's all up to you. God is not going to interfere. If that's the case, I would be terrified to get out of bed in the morning. What if I make the wrong choice? 
What if I go the normal path I go to work and I get in an accident? Oh, well, then I should probably take another path. Well, what if I take another path and I wind up in an accident there instead? And the other path would have been, how, you can't make your mind up. You're terrified of any choice you make because the repercussions of that decision are going to weigh on you. It's all you. You better make the right choice. If you make the wrong decision, it's all on you. You're done. Now what do you do? That's debilitating. So let's err on the other side and say God is utterly sovereign. I don't have to do a thing. If he wants it done, he will make it happen. I'll just sit here and wait. There, there is a form of that called hyper-Calvinism that says, if God wants him saved, he'll lead him in that door. I, don't you ever tell anybody about the gospel. If he wants him, he'll bring him here. What on earth would give you any motivation to do anything then? You just sit and wait for God to do it. I don't have to make any decisions. I don't have to take any risks. God's in charge. He'll just lead the way. So let's all sit on our hands and just wait. That's not a helpful thing either. Now, put them back together. What if it's compatibilism? What if it's both? What if you are free to make a decision as you would like and know that your God is working all things together for your good? That your God is leading in the direction that you need to go so that if you make a mistake, it's not the end of the universe for you. Your sovereign God is saying, no, I love you. I'm going to help you. We're going to go in this direction. And he will lead you. It's the freedom that we have in this idea of compatibilism that's pictured in this, this passage. That God is utterly sovereign, even when things look bad, and that people are free to do what they're going to do. Even when things look bad. So the, the outcry from the Hebrews is an honest thing. Lord, the, the labor has only gotten worse. We weren't sleeping well to begin with because we had to make all these bricks. Now we've got to get up even earlier and go find straw and put it in there. Now what? So they are honest. They're being honest with God. Lord, we don't like this. This is hard. This is really difficult for us. And yet, they've got this overarching promise that God says, no, I'm going to bring you out of this. So when we were talking about... Um, eschatology in that Sunday school course. That was one of the things we looked at is the time between Jesus' ascension to heaven and his return. What happens in the middle of that? Well, it doesn't get easy. There's a lot of difficulty in there. As a matter of fact, for the early church, it got even worse because originally they just had to deal with the Jews. And then all of a sudden the Roman empires are coming after him. The Diocletian and some of these other guys are going after him whole hog. They're killing and torturing him. The Jews, at least, would you know, cast them out of the synagogue or something. So at that point, they could have said with the Hebrews here, it only got worse, Jesus. What are you doing? Where did you go? Why did you leave us here? But that's not what the church did. The church said, we're looking forward to something. We know that it's going to get difficult because Jesus has told us in John chapter 16, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So that's how the early church could face this increased persecution, this increased opposition, is because Jesus said, in this world, you have tribulation. Don't be surprised by this. Don't be carried away by it. This is part of the normal Christian life. Um, in Acts chapter 14, Paul is saying, he's preaching in Antioch and Iconium, and he says, he goes through Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, why do they need encouragement? 
because through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. What is the pattern of life for the disciple? It includes tribulation. Jesus ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God. And yet, we have to make bricks with, and gather our own straw. That's, that's what's going on. So that leads us to this third point. Oh, wait, uh, one more prime example of this. Things got worse before they got better. Jesus comes. He is ministering on the earth. He is healing. He is preaching the gospel. He's setting captives free. He's defeating Satan. He's opposing his enemies. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he gets crucified, he prays, Lord, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to go through this. I know what's coming. Let this cup pass from me. But if there's no other way, Lord, then, then go with me. I'll do this. I'll go with you. And what happens? God doesn't send a legion of angels, wipes out all his enemies. Jesus dies on a cross. It got worse for him before it got better. Now, after that, he, raised, he is risen from the dead, and he ascends to heaven where he's seated currently. But Jesus is the prime example of this, is God sometimes has to take us through bad things before it gets better. And this is one of the complaints that non-believers will offer, is if your God is all-powerful and he's good, then why is there so much evil in the world? And it's a very simple question, isn't it? Can, can round it up pretty quick. The answer is more complicated. The answer is this idea of compatibilism. Here's, here's one approach to the answer. God is all-powerful, God is all-good, and there is evil. But who said he's not doing anything about it? Where did you get the idea? Where do you come up with the facts to prove that he's not doing anything about it? it for example, a, a doctor diagnoses someone with brain cancer. It, it's, a, it's a tumor deep inside the brain. If, he was, if the doctor was to come in and just cut the skull open and start digging his way through, this person would be a vegetable when he was done. There's just no way to get in there and remove that tumor without causing more damage. And so what does the doctor do? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to prescribe a round of radiation treatment. We're going to beam radiation into your head. And then after that, it shrinks the, the tumor. Then we'll put you on a round of chemotherapy, which will make you very sick. I'm trying to kill you, or at least get you close to being killed so that the tumor will die. Now, the person at that point, at the point of the diagnosis, maybe says, you know, I've got this numbness on the side of my face, or you know, I'm, I'm slurring my speech or something. That was bad. The treatment is going to get worse, isn't it? You're going to lose your hair. You're going to vomit constantly. You're not going to be able to eat. But what happens at the end? You're free of the cancer. So when somebody says, if God's all-powerful, and yet there's so much evil, then why is it like that? Well, perhaps God is doing brain surgery on his creation. Perhaps some trial, some difficulty is what's needed to get us from the fall to the new heavens and the new earth. Because in the middle is this thing called this cancer called sin. So we don't have to say, we don't have to give up at that point in the argument and say, well, I, I, God is working. He's just not working according to your timetable. But there is a promise. There is something that we're looking forward to. We will be delivered from this sin. Israel, you're in slavery now. The slavery has gotten worse. You've got to find your own straw. You're going to work your tail off. And it's going to be hard in the months that come. But there will be a deliverance. 
So what gives us that hope? What leads us to that place where we can look forward and say, we're going to make it out of this. It's going to be okay. What gives us hope in the midst of this? Well, what God continues to tell Moses is he reiterates what he said at the, at the burning bush. He says in verse 6, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, I am, and I will bring you out up from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from the, under the burdens of Egyptians. The response to the people's doubt, the response to the people's trial, their 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 utter misery under the burdens of Egypt, the Egyptians is God's tremendous promise. I will do these things, and I am. So when, when Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh? I don't know this God. What God's promise to his people is, is I am who I am, and I will do what I'm going to do. I will make this happen. We have this promise in the midst of the difficulty. He says, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Do you remember Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob from the burning bush? That's the covenant. God has sworn to his people. He has promised. He has said, I will bring you into this land. It will be a land flowing with milk and honey. I will do that because I have sworn to do that. So how do you get from the tribulation, the difficulty, to the hope at the end? Well, we get there because we have God's sure and steady promises that he will do this. This is what gives us hope. This is what leads us to trust these things. So in the meantime, what promises do we have? Jesus said, if I go away, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I do that, I'm going to come back and get you and bring you to where I am. I'm not going away just because I, I need to scram. He's promised us this glorious future, this idea that we will reign with him that he will bring us to a new heavens and a new earth. He's given us a glimpse of that in the book of Revelation. Here's this city of God, and there's no temple. Why? Because God doesn't live there? No, because God lives there without a temple. It's even better than it ever was. And that's that glorious hope. That's that look to the future that we're hoping for. And so that's how we move from tribulation, from difficulty, and we look forward in hope. And that was kind of my theme with why do we care about eschatology? Well, it's where we're heading. That's the, the end of the story. We need to know that. We need to hope in that because that's where he's leading us. So in the meantime, we've got these promises that we hang on to. And what do we do? Well, we have patience. We wait. Is it going to get worse before it gets better? It might. It might be. But listen to this, Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus ascended into heaven so he could send the Spirit. The Spirit comes and he seals you and he produces fruit in you. And one of the pieces of fruit is patience. You will make it through this. You need to be patient. And then Hebrews chapter 6. Sorry, Dan, jumping ahead of you. You're only on four, right? Or did you do six? Eight? Okay, so everybody who's in Dan's Sunday school can just tune out because, you know, whatever he said was probably right. But there's this great promise. He says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope. 
right? That's where we're heading for. That's where we're moving to is we have to have this assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's exactly what God has said here in, in Exodus. He's, he's bidding his people have patience, have hope. I have made promises. You will inherit them. And if it's not clear enough there, he says, inherit the promises for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. This is exactly what's been going on in Exodus. Is God swore by his name, I am. He's made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Israel. And he's saying now be patient and I will follow through, have hope and I will follow through. The promise will come, you will see the fruit of it. And so, for us, we look back and, and we have something that the Israelites didn't have at this point. Israel, what Israel absolutely lacked at this point was a long history that God had inscripturated to show he is faithful over and over and over and over and over. We didn't have that. They didn't have that rehearsed before them where they could look back and go, God promised us that he's going to save us. He's going to set us free from sin and death and hell. In the meantime, we don't see him ruling as he will, but we have this hope in the future. And by the way, we get to look back at all of Scripture, and we get to watch God be faithful repeatedly. God make promises and fulfill them over and over and over again, and the Israelites didn't have that. They had stories of their fathers, but they didn't have this whole redemptive history that we get to look at. So we have something more sure than they did. We have something fuller. They didn't have Jesus incarnate standing there saying, I will lead, I will do this. They had Moses incarnate. Moses is not as good. Read Hebrews. Who's better, Moses or, Aaron, or uh, Jesus? Jesus wins every time. So we have this blessing they didn't have. We have this hope. We have this future to look forward to. And in the center of this whole thing is that idea of compatibilism. What do you want? What do you desire? What is it that you're longing for? I saw a bumper sticker this week that just about made me cry. It was a little vinyl sticker in the corner of a window and it said, best life ever. And I looked at that and I went, oh gosh, I hope not. If this is the best, best life that I'm ever gonna have, I'd rather end it now. I'm hoping for something far better than this. So I know what they were trying to say. They were saying, you know, they're enjoying their life and everything's good and, and everything. But please don't listen to the, to the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers when they tell you this is your best life now. This is not your best life. We're hoping for something far, far better. And what we have is God working in the midst of this, working through the trials and the tribulations, through the difficulty, through the opposition, and Jesus is standing before us saying, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Why? Because I have all authority. And by the way, I'm with you to the end of the age. I will always be with you. Now go. We have that hope, that promise. So can we have a hope without straw? If, if things get bad, if, if work increases, if it gets harder for us to share the gospel with people, can we have hope without straw? And the other meaning, the alternative meaning of that is, we don't have a hope that's filled with straw. 
right? Our hope is rooted in the reality of who Jesus is. He ascended into heaven. He is ruling over the nations now, and he's promised us a glorious future that, that we're waiting for it to come. So that's the hope without straws. For more work, that's okay. A hope that's not empty, that's not puffed up with nothing. I thought it was clever, so that's why I chose that name. Now, what we see in five and six is we don't see any of that hope yet, do we? We've just got a taste of what God is continuing to say. That's why I said the most important part is chapter six. The most important part is what God says in the midst of this, because what the people are saying, and by the way, if we were there, we would be saying it too, is the non-believer is saying, I don't know who Yahweh is. I'm not going to listen to him. The people saying, well, you're not from Yahweh, because why would he do bad things to us? And then the people who are from Yahweh go, well, why did you send me? It hasn't gotten any better. So we need God's divine voice to speak into that and say, I've made promises. I'm giving you hope. I will accomplish what I will accomplish in the midst of your enemies. That's why the Psalm says for David, I have set a table in, in the midst of your enemies. Do you sit down and eat in front of your enemies? I, I don't think I was ever trained in the Air Force to set a table in the battlefield. I was trained to put on gas masks and run and hide and put helmets on and that, and that kind of stuff. I wasn't trained to sit down in the middle of my enemies and have a feast. But this is what God's promise is, is I've overcome them all. I, I will work to end them all. I'm going to beat them. So have this hope, have this promise. The Israelites don't have it, but we can get a glimpse of it when we listen to God in the midst of it. So with that in mind, let's close in prayer. Oh, God of wonders. You do things that are beyond our galaxy, things that we can't see, that we can't perceive, that we can't understand. But Lord, in the midst of our little lives, in the midst of this tiny short time span we have on this tiny little globe, Lord, you fill us with such hope. You have made us tremendous promises. And Lord, you are working all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And Lord, we trust in that. So as the difficulties come, as the struggles are real and present, and as we see these things, Lord, I pray that we would remember you are sovereign and working all things together. It is your divine, strong, mighty hand that causes these to happen. And so, Lord, in the midst of that, I pray that we would make wise and good decisions, that we would chase after you with the hope of the promise that stands before us. And, Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name because he is our high priest, our king. He is our representative. And he is our hope and our promise. In his name, amen.